Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Head Mirrors ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Linda Yin, and I will be your host. And I am fortunate enough to be joined today by Dr. Ehab Hanna. Dr. Hanna is a head and neck surgeon with a special interest in skull based surgery. And Dr. Hanna, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Dr. Yin. So today we're going to talk about sinonasal undifferentiated carcinoma, otherwise known as SNUCs. And Dr. Hanna, what is the typical presentation of a patient with a sinonasal undifferentiated carcinoma? Well, SNUC typically presents with uh, rapid growth, a very high propensity for local regional invasion, and um, is characterized by um, invasion into the neighboring structures, including the orbit and the brain, at a relatively early stage. What kind of symptoms do people sometimes experience uh, or they tell you about when they come into your office? So early on in the early stages of tumor development, the symptoms can be very similar to a more benign uh, sinus disease like chronic rhinosinusitis. So nasal obstruction, facial pain and pressure, headache, um, and um, occasionally epistaxis. Now, the tip-off here um, that this is a uh, potentially a malignancy is the unilateral nature of these symptoms, although by no means bilateral symptoms would exclude malignancy. Um, and because of these uh, vague symptoms and mimicking uh, more benign disease, that also contributes to uh, an advanced uh, disease presentation. I see. And then when people do present with really advanced disease, what kind of uh, morbidity do you see in terms of their symptoms or signs? As the disease advances more and invades local structures, as we've mentioned, the brain and the eye are the uh, most uh, likely to be uh, invaded. Um, and we uh, know that dural invasion, for example, is present in up to 50% and eye invasion in up to 30% uh, or more of these patients. Uh, clearly, the eye invasion can present visual um, symptoms, including changes in visual acuity, visual field, uh, visual mobility, leading to diplopia uh, or proptosis. Uh, intracranial invasion um, can uh, be uh, detected uh, by multiple cranial neuropathies, um, or other uh, neurologic symptoms, uh, including headaches um, and so forth. And for a resident in clinic with you examining a patient with a highly suspected sinonasal malignancy, what kind of exam maneuvers should be performed? Well, uh, just like any suspected malignancy in the head and neck, a comprehensive head and neck examination is important, but I would focus primarily um, on the uh, neurologic exam, including a full cranial nerve exam with an emphasis on uh, uh, eye examination or orbital examination, uh, looking at uh, the uh, orbital mobility, the uh, uh, presence of proptosis uh, or epiphora, which can result from nasolacrimal duct obstruction. Um, I would also uh, examine the ear to look for middle ear effusion. Uh, which would indicate uh, local extension into the eustachian tube. Uh, the hallmark or the focal point of the examination is a well-executed 
uh, nasal endoscopic examination. I prefer to do that with rigid endoscopy uh, for the purpose of a uh, focused or dedicated nasal exam. Um, I think flexible endoscopy is fine, um, but I, I feel like if, if the focus is a nasal, uh, high quality nasal endoscopy exam, the rigid endoscope allows uh, the, the application of suction or uh, uh, other maneuvers to uh, examine the nose more, more thoroughly. And then finally, I would palpate the neck for any cervical adenopathy, which is present in about 30% uh, of patients. When you're looking in the nose with an endoscope, what sites within the nasal, the sinal nasal cavity, would you most likely expect to see this sort of tumor? Um, so the most common site of origin, uh, by the time we see these patients, is a, in the nasoethmoid region. So I would probably look in the nasal cavity proper. I would look in the area of the middle meatus, try to identify if there's any sort of turbinate displacement or turbinate invasion or turbinate turbinate replacement. Um, I would look at the floor of the nose and see if there's any attachment to the floor of the nose. I would certainly look superiorly to see if I can get above the tumor or if the tumor is completely obliterating the roof of the nose with potential for skull base invasion. And then finally, I would look through the septum and the contralateral side to see if there's any bilateral involvement. Switching gears now into a bit of disease epidemiology. So what exactly is the incidence or prevalence or, you know, how common are SNUCs in the general population? So as you know, cyanidism malignancy in general uh, is extremely rare among all the head and neck uh, neoplasms we deal with. And uh, the, the incidence is around eight cases per million for collectively all cyanidism malignancies combined. Uh, now, SNUCs or sinonasal undifferentiated carcinoma make about uh, 3 to 5% of all of these malignancies. So it's pretty rare. What are some risk factors that could contribute to folks getting this disease, lifestyle or demographic risk factors? We actually don't know. We, we, there is no clear-cut risk factors, whether clinical or epidemiologic, that have been documented. We do know that it's a little bit more um, uh, common in males uh, with about two to three uh, times as common as in females. Uh, we know that the median age is somewhere between 50 and 60 years of age, uh, but it can present anywhere uh, from childhood uh, to uh, adolescence, uh, which is pretty rare. Uh, I think the youngest patient I've seen was NUC was 19, and the oldest I've seen was in the late 80s. Um, so... Um, I, I wish we, um, we had a, a clear correlation of an epidemiologic factor so that we can have some prevention uh, interventions uh, to reduce the risk of this uh, deadly disease. Let's switch gears now and talk a little about pathogenesis. So what exactly is a sinonasal undifferentiated carcinoma? So that's an Excellent question. It remains to actually be answered in a good uh, scientific uh, method. I, I think there's quite a bit of controversy about the histogenesis uh, and the sort of proper classification of SNUC. The current thought is that it probably is a neuroendocrine lineage um, of, a, uh, of a tumor. 
belonging to the neuroendocrine group of tumors uh, in the head and neck. Another thought is that it's just a de-differentiated or undifferentiated, more common squamous lineage, uh, primarily of a squamous epithelial sort of a lineage. I, I tend to uh, think of it in the former for many reasons, uh, and we can we can delve into that a little bit. But um, the distinction between a poorly differentiated squame and SNUC is important, in my opinion, because not only it impacts prognosis, but uh, I think it also impacts treatment. Yeah, let's delve a little deeper. So what are the pathology features that you can see in a stuck? And, and why, why do you tend to lean towards the neuroendocrine lineage sort of uh, pattern or school of thought? So it's a very aggressive looking tumor under the microscope. And uh, most pathologists will, will say that this is a uh, sort of a undifferentiated uh, round blue cell tumor. Uh, and the differential diagnosis of that is very broad, and we can get into that as well. Um, it, the, the cells are, are very pleomorphic. There is a significant amount of uh, lymphovascular invasion and necrosis, high grade of mitosis, a very aggressive-looking tumor. Uh, also, uh, in addition to that, the immunohistochemistry profile to try to um, sort of classify this round blue cell tumor a little bit better, uh, shows some uh, positive reaction to neuroendocrine markers, uh, such as chromogranin and synaptophysin, although it's not necessarily um, have to be present to make the diagnosis. Typically, if they stain for neuroendocrine markers, the staining is weak, again, because of the very um, uh, undifferentiated nature of the tumor. Now, um, to make it a carcinoma, uh, it has to be positive for epithelial markers such as AE1, AE3. Um, it does show, and that's, I think, part of the confusion why people think that it may be related to squamous cell carcinoma, that it is positive in some cases to uh, low molecular weight cytokeratins, um, but it is specifically negative for CK or cytokeratin 5, 6, and 14, uh, which is different from squamous cell carcinoma. So, you know, it's, it sounds like this is really a, a pathology diagnosis. And I, I like what you said about the small round blue cell tumors, because I think this is some, something that uh, is commonly asked of residents. So what should be on everyone's differential when we hear from the pathologist? You know, you took a biopsy of a malignant-looking mass in the nose, and it comes back and they say it looks like a small round blue cell tumor. What else should be on the differential? So uh, round blue cell tumors is, is a broad list of cancers that uh, needs, need to be uh, differentiated uh, because, uh, as I've mentioned, not only their behavior uh, is different, but their treatment is different. So um, when I... When I work with a pathologist on this, the first distinction is to do markers that would look at two groups, epithelial and non-epithelial. And this is where cytokeratins come into place. So um, if we have markers that are positive for epithelial differentiation, that we are dealing with uh, a carcinoma, uh, and that include SNUC, poorly differentiated uh, squame, uh, the squame variants, uh, the new uh, 
entity called HPV-related multiphenotypic uh, squamous cell carcinoma um, and uh, neuroendocrine carcinomas, and then the newly um, described nut carcinomas and the SMARC uh, B deficient or INI deficient carcinomas. That is a whole group of uh, carcinomas that share the positivity to epithelial markers. Um, and then the distinction among that group will depend on their specific uh, molecular and immunohistochemical profile. If the epithelial markers are missing, then we are dealing with a non-epithelial group of tumors. And uh, uh, these can be neuroectodermal in origin, uh, they can be hematolymphoid in origin or mesenchymal in origin. So, for example, if they are neuroectodermal in origin, and these are the ones that we deal with the most, it could be olfactory neuroblastoma, um, Ewing sarcoma or PNET, and melanoma uh, belongs to that group. Uh, mesenchymal tumors um, include rhabdomyosarcoma, uh, mesenchymal chondrosarcoma, synovial sarcoma, um, and um, undifferentiated sarcomas. And then rarely the hematolymphoid tumors include extramedullary plasma cytoma and extramedullary myeloid sarcoma. Again, within these buckets, as you can see, the list is huge. Uh, we uh, tend to do both molecular as well as phenotypic and immunohistochemical analysis to try to uh, get to the accurate diagnosis here. Yes, thank you for that comprehensive overview. Um, and the last question I have about pathogenesis is, um, you know, something that's always sort of considered in the head and neck. And with some recent studies on SNUCs, there's been some mention of HPV. So is there any role for HPV in the pathogenesis for this particular tumor? You know, the data is evolving and it's still unclear. Uh, I think that uh, we have seen P16 positivity in some of these uh, smaller studies um, with overexpression on immunohistochemistry of the protein. Uh, even smaller series suggested the presence of the uh, HPV virus based on in situ hybridization. Um, we don't know the significance of that. There may be an early sort of signal that it may uh, carry a better prognosis, but I think we're far from making any statements on the prevalence of that or its impact um, on, on SNUC. Certainly in other head and neck sites, besides the oropharynx, the presence of HPV did not uh, impact a prognosis. So we, we, we don't really um, have the data and we shouldn't rush into assuming uh, a better prognosis uh, with HPV. I'm going to switch gears now and ask you a little bit about the clinical workup. So if somebody comes into our clinic and um, with a snuck-looking lesion and we biopsy it and it's a small round blue cell tumor, what say we have no imaging, what type of imaging study should be obtained for a complete evaluation and staging for a snuck? Actually, I'm going to step back for one little step before the imaging, uh, if 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 indeed the patient comes with a diagnosis of SNUC or even a round blue cell tumor, I would say the first thing that needs to happen is to obtain the biopsy uh, slides or even better, the blocks and direct them in consultation with a dedicated 
head and neck pathologist, uh, whether in your institution or if that is not available in, in your institution, uh, to put in a consultation uh, remotely with someone who really sees a lot of these tumors. And the reason I mention that is um, the ease and, and the frequency by which these are misdiagnosed. Um, so just to give you a little bit of a context and some data, uh, there's a recent paper published last month, uh, actually in May, uh, in the laryngoscope by Dr. Karen Choi um, and our group looking at the clinical implications of diagnostic and histopathologic discrepancy in sinonasal malignancies in general. So what I'm saying here applies to any sinonasal cancer, including uh, SNUC, but also can be uh, olfactory neuroblastoma, neuroendocrine carcinoma, or any other aggressive-looking sinonasal tumor. In that study uh, of almost 400 sinonasal cancers, the rate of misdiagnosis was as high as 60% on re-review by a dedicated pathologist. Now, of that 60%, 25% that one in four patients had a major discrepancy in diagnosis. So discrepancies could be minor like grade or uh, uh, subtype, but major would be to... Uh, assign a new category of cancer or a new lineage of cancer altogether. Well, the reason that's important is um, that it did impact prognosis and survival. So patients who had no discrepancy actually had better survival than patients who had discrepancy. And that was a pretty significant uh, change in survival. And you can see that that makes most sense because if you have an, a, a wrong diagnosis at the outset and maybe an initial treatment is applied that is not the ideal initial step in treatment, uh, you can see how that would impact the prognosis when finally the right diagnosis is made and the treatment plan changes. Um, the second point I want to make about that is that the two most common misdiagnoses with SNUC is olfactory neuroblastoma, particularly if it's high-grade, uh, high AMS 3 or 4, and neuroendocrine carcinoma. And as uh, we will be delving here soon into treatment, olfactory neuroblastoma is decidedly a surgical disease. That's not as clear-cut with SNUC and neuroendocrine carcinoma. So I would I always stress to my residents and fellows that the first step in the workup is to get on the phone or get on the email and request the pathology slides and make sure that they fall in the hands of an experienced pathologist so that we know exactly uh, what we do. Back to your question about imaging, I, I, I think, you know, I, I think CT and MRI are complementary here. I have no problem ordering both. As you know, CT will give us uh, excellent detailed bony detail, particularly in the bone windows. If we want to look at the lamina papyricia, for example, if we want to look at the cribriform plate, for example. Um, and then the, the MRI will give us um, high definition soft tissue detail, particularly in the orbit, whether we want to find out if the periorbital is invaded, if the tumor is extra or intraconal within the orbit. Um, and then the intracranial invasion will give us a sense of 
whether it's extradural, subdural, or actually there is brain parenchymal invasion, is there is vasogenic edema of the brain, is there any shift uh, in the midline uh, 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 brain structures, all of these will be important. Uh, if, if only one uh, study uh, is allowed, uh, then I would choose MRI because I can gain the entire information from the MRI alone. And even the bony sort of uh, uh, information can be gleaned into uh, well with the MRI. So um, in reality, to be honest with you, patients usually get a CT when they have sinus complaints at the initial outset until they figure out there is a bigger problem, then they get an MRI. So most patients I see already have both. Um, it's important to look in the neck, uh, to look at the lymph nodes. And then because of the proclivity for distant disease, uh, up to 25 to 30% in these patients um, over the course of their disease, I think that a uh, systemic uh, metastasis workup, uh, probably a PET CT uh, or at a minimum a CT of the chest and upper abdomen uh, is warranted. And just to clarify, do you feel that um, the two, you know, snucks are aggressive enough that pretty much everybody should have some kind of workup for distant disease, or do you have a threshold for when you when you get those other scans for distant disease? I get them on all patients with confirmed snuck. What are some ways that we can stage snucks? So, without repeating, you know what's what's already known about the AGC system, uh, the TNM system, uh, the modified eighth eighth uh, uh, edition of the AGC system is the most commonly used. And again, it's based on uh, the tumor extent, nodal involvement, the presence of uh, uh, distant disease, and everybody's familiar with that, and it's you know readily available. I, I have seen the CADIS system, which is used for esthesioneuroblastoma, to be um, used by some, and it correlates uh, to survival in SNUCs. However, I, I don't think it has been thoroughly uh, validated um, in SNUC as much as it has in uh, olfactory neuroblastoma. In fact, even in olfactory neuroblastoma, people are always sort of trying to tweak the CADIS system. And... Um, there's a lot of controversy, even in olfactory neuroblastoma, whether the grade of the tumor is more important or the stage according to the CADIS system. So I tend to use the AG, AJCC system uh, more um, or actually exclusively for SNUC, uh, just because it is the more commonly validated system in sinonasal cancers in general. And I want to bridge us, as you said, into talking about management of the disease. But, you know, when a patient comes into your office and uh, they've just been diagnosed, how do you counsel them? What is uh, on the sort of natural history and prognosis for, for the disease? So I tend to be, uh, you know, very straightforward and, you know, from the, from the get-go just to set the expectations. Obviously, this needs to be done in a very gentle and patient centric and compassionate way to the patient and their family. But I, I immediately let them know that this is an aggressive cancer and it has um, uh, the attention of everybody in oncology just because of its natural history. Uh, 
The prognosis lately has improved with some of the more recent series than the earlier series, uh, but it still has a very high rate of local regional recurrence, distant disease, uh, and as we've talked before, uh, the majority of patients uh, know already they have a big problem because, you know, half of them will have envision into the orbit, the skull base, the brain, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, somewhere between 10 to 30% have lymph node metastases. So I, I, I tell them we're dealing with a, uh, an aggressive cancer. I also tell them that no matter what the treatment sequence and the treatment components will be, it will be a uh, multimodal therapy. This is not a monotherapy cancer. Uh, this will require at a minimum two modalities of therapy and uh, in, in, in a good number of patients, a tri-modality of therapy, just to set the expectations that we're, we're, we're dealing with uh, a pretty aggressive cancer and that they are likely to undergo pretty aggressive therapy. I hate to push you on this, but you know a lot of a lot of patients uh, that come into the office always want to know numbers, and I've read a huge, you know, wide range of, of five year, ten year survival outcomes for this for for SNUX. And so, you know, w- with the best algorithms that we have now, what do you think um, our our chances, and what do you think the the sort of best case scenario overall survival is at about five years with what we're doing now? You're absolutely right, Dr. Yin. I, I, I think the percentages of survival are all over the place with this disease. And I, I, I know why. It's because they include series from old, series from recent, series treated suboptimally, and series treated with, with, with better knowledge now of what, what we need to do. So what I do when patients ask me that is I refocus the problem and I told them this is a rare disease, so percentages are not as informative as, uh, for example, breast cancer or lung cancer or colon cancer, where we have hundreds of thousands of cases to draw from. Uh, But what I do tell them that we look for certain things to tell us whether we are, we do have a fighting chance. So for example, that's why we're looking for distant metastases, just to make sure that we're still dealing with localized disease. Uh, we want to optimize the therapy to, to make that whatever percentage is, is, is high uh, and as much as possible by selecting the, the proper therapy. And I also assure them that in the, if there is at any point in time, I, I realize that they have uh, no fighting chance or very little chance, I will be the first to tell them that I emphasize to them and that in the absence of distant disease, uh, that we are in full curative mode. And uh, when we get to the treatment part here, I also tell them that how they respond to the various components of the treatment changes those percentages quite a bit. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have that discussion here shortly. So I understand there are some general schools of thought about how to approach and treat uh, SNUCs. Um, and so, and then we're, and I should, I should clarify that we're talking about, you know, intent to cure treatment. So what are the, what are the general, um, algorithms or schools of thoughts for intent to cure treatment for SNUCs? So for a long time, there were only two sort of general thought processes or paradigms of treatment. Um, the, 
the more established, time-honored, uh, sort of tradition-based, uh, without very uh, strong data to back it up, was surgery with postoperative radiation. Um, and then the second school of thought is starting with non-surgical therapy, uh, including concurrent chemoradiation, uh, so conformal radiation with a radiosensitizer, uh, such as a platinum-based chemotherapy, um, and, and, and leaving surgery for salvage. Um, and I understand why uh, this divergence in, in, in approach and also why the proponents of one uh, tend to stick with it uh, without really understanding completely the full picture here. So um, surgery and radiation postoperatively uh, has been sort of the hallmark of treatment for most sinonasal cancers. And as you know, this includes squamous cell carcinoma, adenocarcinoma, and adenoid cystic carcinoma being common. Um, so people borrow that, and olfactory neuroblastoma as well. Uh, so people borrow that model and apply it to all sinonasal cancers because it's sinus cancer. Well, the problem here is twofold. One, as we already discussed, this particular cancer is far too advanced in most cases uh, for a meaningful surgical resection. Um, we've already talked about more than half the patients have deep invasion in the orbit or the brain, which makes resectability and securing good margins, very, very difficult, if not impossible. Uh, two, uh, the surgery required to even attempt to get a, a, a negative margin here is uh, very radical. I mean, we're talking about exonerations and craniotomies and, and you know, brain resections and, and, and such. And then three, the series that report on the outcome of surgery are inherently biased for lower stage disease. So, you know, when you see a report of, you know, 12 cases or 16 cases or 40 cases, uh, or even a meta-analysis of all these small series, what you're looking at is the 20 to 30% at best of these cases that present in a, in, a, in a manner where a surgeon looks at the scan and say, oh, I can resect this, it's not that bad. So then the results of surgery are um, sort of fictitiously looking better than the results of other treatments, simply because of that selection bias towards um, earlier disease. Now, the proponents of chemoradiation concurrently at the uh, outset will say, yes, indeed, most disease, uh, most patients present with far advanced disease where surgery is not meaningful, it's highly morbid, and the rate of positive margins is so high, even with an exoneration and a brain resection. But more importantly, I think there is, a, there is an issue of biology here where if we do think of this tumor as a neuroendocrine, actually the most common sort of uh, cousin or lookalike is small cell lung cancer, just not under the microscope and in behavior. And 
if you, if you buy into that histogenesis theory, small cell lung cancer is treated non-surgically with a high response rate to uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy. Um, and, and then the, the issue of uh, the high rate of distant disease also calls for, for the need for cytotoxic chemotherapy. So that's why the second school of thought is sort of non-surgical, multimodal, including systemic therapy. Um, so these are the two sort of uh, main uh, directions in, in treatment. That's a helpful way to think about it. So um, let's talk about the non-surgical treatment then. So, um, and, you know, I... You know, I, I think I'll just jump into it because I know a lot of your your research has been on uh, the role for induction chemotherapy for SNUG. So um, can you tell me a bit more about that and what is the rationale? Uh, what, is, what do the outcomes look like for induction using induction chemo? Because these two approaches for treatment, the primary surgery with postoperative radiation uh, has uh, some pros and cons, and similarly, the concurrent chemo radiation have pros and cons. I wasn't um, completely wedded to one or the other. Uh, clearly, um, we've already talked about the limitations of primary surgeries that a lot of patients are not even eligible for that, uh, the radical nature, the inability to get negative margins. Uh, not that there is no role at all for it, but uh, I think that, that it became clear to me that that is not the cornerstone of treatment. On the other hand, um, concurrent chemoradiotherapy, while some patients do respond favorably, there is decidedly a subgroup of patients that end up with persistent disease and don't respond to chemoradiotherapy. And now we are faced with the question of salvage surgery in a patient that already had a high-dose radiation, 66 to 70 gray, had chemotherapy, they are, they've been through the ringer, they're a bit debilitated. And as you know, that the complications of uh, craniofacial and skull-based surgery after high-dose chemoradiation is pretty high. I mean, we're, we're dealing with CSF, we're dealing with visual apparatus, we're, we're dealing with the cerebral vessels. And um, if surgery were to be done, if surgery is even feasible, I would much rather have that done before high-dose chemoradiation rather than after in the salvage setting. Plus, the outcome of salvage surgery after failure of chemoradiation from an oncologic standpoint uh, are pretty dismal. So, because of these limitations on both of these philosophies, and because there is a decided need for good systemic therapy to reduce the risk of distant metastases, we started out with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, again, similar to small cell lung cancer. And the chemotherapy regimen we use are um, pretty much focused on neuroendocrine tumors, so usually sort of an etoposide, cisplatin-type combination, again, similar to small cell lung cancer. And what we've learned early on is that some patients with SNUC will respond extremely well <clears throat> to 
uh, chemotherapy. You give them the first dose, the proptosis is better, their pain is better. By the second dose, they can breathe through their nose. If they had a lymph node, it's visibly shrunk. Um, very brisk response. Some patients will have that. And these were our early observations. Our observations as well were that such patients that show a brisk response to induction chemotherapy, if they receive concurrent chemo radiation afterwards, they have a very high rate of a complete response and either do not need surgery at all or if they need surgery, it would be sort of a to confirm CR or to uh, do a nidosectomy and clean whatever is left, and very frequently there's no viable tumor in it. So these early observations um, prompted us to study neoadjuvant chemotherapy in a systematic fashion on all patients with SNUC. So that became sort of our evolved uh, treatment paradigm. And we just published this not too long ago in, in, the, uh, in JCO, with almost 100 patients of SNUC, all treated with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And the take-home message from that study is the following. When patients get induction chemotherapy, about 70% of them will have at least a CR, a, a PR, partial response, um, which is defined as more than 50% shrinkage in the tumor bidimensionally. These patients are overwhelmingly treated with chemoradiation and rather than surgery. Um, in fact, more than two-thirds of those uh, that responded received chemoradiation. That subgroup of patients that had induction, had a good response, and got chemoradiation, their five-year survival was about 80%. Now, if they had response to induction chemotherapy and received surgery first, then chemoradiation, surprisingly, their survival was a little less than if they had chemoradiation right away and not have surgery in the middle. Still, collectively, because they responded to induction chemotherapy, their survival is better. Now, if you look at the 30% of patients that do not respond to induction chemotherapy, these patients, if they have any fighting chance for cure, that is done through surgery. Because if you don't do surgery on these patients, the survival is almost zero. So what's, what's the summary here? I treat SNUC with induction chemotherapy for two reasons. One, I want to address distant disease early on. We know that we need multimodal therapy. Induction chemotherapy gives me the opportunity to select between the two approaches that we've discussed as the traditional approaches optimally. We know that responders will do well with chemoradiation. And we know that non-responders would do better with surgery. So that has been our approach. And I think the data has backed it up and overall has improved uh, the prognosis and the survival compared to historical controls. Thank you for sharing all those important results. You know, I hate to talk about cancer care in terms of algorithms. You know, it really, we're, we're all providing really individualized care for all our patients. But, you know, what is your approach? So do you try to start uh, all patients with SNUCs on induction chemo, regardless of the stage of presentation? Um, and then, again, based on your, based on the response patterns that you described, um, 
how do you handle that uh, afterwards in terms of whether they should, uh, you know, all get uh, chemo radiation after, or um, or how do you counsel them after the induction chemo step? So my algorithm is yes, I treat all SNUCs with induction chemotherapy because I think even the early SNUCs has the potential to uh, go bad um, with distant disease as well as uh, de-differentiation if if the initial therapy was not successful um, um, and, and more aggressive behavior. So, um, you know, we can sit here and argue about the T1 that can get an endoscopic resection with negative margins and postoperative radiation and, and say, why are you doing induction for such a small tumor and the chemotherapy? And, 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 and I have no arguments. Sure, if that's what you want to do, I, I, there, there, there is no compelling data to say that that's wrong. I just feel that the threat of distant disease is real, even in early tumors. And I think that well-executed, well-delivered chemotherapy, and by the way, our induction chemotherapy is two cycles, three weeks apart. Um, and, uh, you know, we select our patients well for the right dose. We substitute drugs. We reduce the dose for those with comorbidities. I mean, clearly, uh, we're not talking about you know, six or seven cycles of systemic therapy. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a short cycle. But yes, I do induction of all of them. Now, response assessment, we need, we need to talk a little bit about that because it's important. If the patient tells you that their symptoms are better, the epistaxis is gone, the proptosis is improving, the diplopia has disappeared, the pain and pressure are gone, the lymph node is smaller, we typically will get a, an MRI after two cycles uh, and 50% bi-dimensional reduction uh, is, is a very promising and reliable um, way of assessing response. However, I'll tell you, it's not always easy. So sometimes we even get a PET scan uh, before and after and look at metabolic response. So I have seen not infrequently that the MRI or CT shows that the mass doesn't really change in, in dimensions all that much, but it went from bright as the sun as dark as the night on the PET scan. This is a functional response. And then the endoscopic examination as well. If all four symptoms, endoscopy, cross-sectional imaging, and functional imaging are telling you that the tumor is melting away or responding, my next step is chemoradiation based on the results of the JCO paper. And then once they finish chemoradiation, um, we get cross-sectional imaging, and endoscopy cross-sectional imaging, and uh, in about 12 weeks, uh, PET imaging. And in the absence of any signal, we don't do surgery. We don't do random biopsies. We don't do mapping. Uh, a negative PET CT in this setting is the negative predictive value of that is, 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 is very high. So um, observation is what we do. Now, if we have residual disease on CT or on PET or on MRI or on endoscopy, we will do limited surgery to see if that residual disease has live tumor or this is post-treatment effects. If after induction chemotherapy, well, the tumor is about the same or shrunk a little bit, but not more than, you know, 20, 25%, uh, or, you know, it's rare that the tumor progresses. We've seen that too, but it, it's less than 10% of the cases. Um, then we assess resectability and move 
to surgery very quickly if surgery is feasible. Thank you so much for sharing all that. I know our time is is running short, um, but since I've got the world expert here, I wanted to just ask you for um, you know a couple of extra questions here. So, next steps in research, next frontiers. Where do you think um, the systemic therapy is evolving in SNUC? The you know hot topics and head and neck and cutaneous in general are sort of targeted therapies and. Um, and immunotherapy. Is there any role for any of that in the management of SNUCs going forward? We are actively um, pursuing both of these fronts uh, very, very aggressively. So we have a phase two clinical trial right now looking at the induction regimen adding an immunotherapy um, uh, drug. So uh, it's the same chemotherapy, cisplatin metoposide, but we're adding an immunotherapy drug with it. Um, to, to see if we can improve response rates uh, even beyond the uh, 60 to 70 percent that we have with chemotherapy alone. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, and, uh, and then in our lab, um, we've, we've published probably right now maybe five or six page, uh, papers on the molecular profiling um, of SNUCs uh, to look for targeted therapy um, and um, we are investigating uh, both uh, the genomic profile, but also the immune microenvironment. In, on the bench, we, we, we have a couple of cell lines of SNUC, which is a fortunate position to be. Uh, it, it's a very difficult disease to study because of the lack of established cell line, but we, we were successful to grow our own. And um, so, some of these papers are already in print, so I'd encourage uh, you know, everyone listening here to look at those. And, and, and help us. Uh, so if you see some of the targets we've identified and you want to pursue them, uh, that, that would be very helpful to the whole field. Amazing. Well, uh, very exciting stuff ahead of us. Um, and Dr. Han, I want to thank you so much for your time, for being here today and answering all my sometimes difficult questions. Um, I've learned a ton from talking to you. Uh, this has been incredibly helpful, I think, not just for a resident or um, folks interested in head and neck surgery, but um, even um, head and neck surgeons, perhaps, with all of the new advancements that you've described. Um, is there anything else that we've missed that we haven't covered, anything you want to emphasize before we conclude? Thank you very much, Dr. Yin. I'm, I'm honored to have been hosted by you. Um, uh, you, you did have some tough questions, but hopefully I shed some light on some of these controversial issues. And, it, you know, the questions are tough, not because you are tough, but because the topic is tough. And uh, it's my pleasure, and I'm really honored to, to, to have participated in this, and, and thank you for including me. Thank you so much. All right, so now I'll be providing some key points uh, to summarize the talk that we just had. So SNUCs or sinonasal undifferentiated carcinoma is a very aggressive malignancy that occurs in the sinonasal cavity. The typical presentation for a patient with a SNUC is typically uh, advanced or late stage. At the beginning of disease, patients can have pretty vague symptoms, including unilateral nasal obstruction or pain or epistaxis. That can be mistaken for benign sinonasal disease. But as the disease progresses, uh, typically there is uh, involvement of the dura or intracranial cavity and involvement of the orbit that might lead to changes of the eye, including proptosis or vision changes uh, that would be so telling signs of more ag uh, aggressive and advanced disease. 
Snucks are a very rare malignancy, even within sinonasal malignancies, making up a small proportion of head and neck cancers. There is a slight male predominance and uh, a, a median age that's in the 50s to 60s, but really this can occur in anyone as early as adolescence and as, uh, as late as uh, octogenarians. The pathology of snucks is something uh, of um, difficult distinction and uh, perhaps even controversy. Um, there are two general schools of thought that um, this is really a, sort of a very, very de-differentiated squamous cell cancer, or that this is neuroendocrine uh, in etiology uh, on the same spectrum as esthesial neuroblastomas or synonasal neuroendocrine carcinomas. Um, but in terms of immunologic histochemistry staining, SNUCs are typically positive for epithelial markers, including AE1 and AE3, and they're positive for low molecular weight cytokeratins, but not for CK5, 6, or 14, which are positive in squamous cell cancer. They have very variable reactivity to the neuroendocrine markers, but are typically negative for other uh, markers that are examined in sinonasal cancers, including EBV and NUT. Biopsy and pathologic diagnosis is key in the workup of this disease, and pathology should be reviewed by expert head and neck specialized pathologists, ideally at tertiary referral centers. In terms of imaging studies that are helpful, CT of the uh, face will give us, uh, as well as the neck, will give us a exa good examination of the bony uh, anatomy and any, any bony invasion, as well as uh, examination of neck disease. MRI will give us a better understanding of orbital, uh, as well as intracranial involvement. SNUCs can be staged by the AJCC system, which is preferable um, or by the CADISH system that's used for cesial neuroblastomas, although the data on how this might correlate to survival is still not fully understood. SNUCs are highly aggressive. Um, as we discussed, about half of the patients already present with very advanced disease involving the orbit or skull base. There is a high rate of nodal involvement and a high rate of distant metastasis as well. Prognosis is difficult to estimate as survival numbers are sort of all over the board due to the rarity of the disease in small series that have been published. But um, in general, the prognosis for the disease is improving with newer treatment algorithms. There are two traditional schools of thought for the treatment of SNUCs. The first is upfront surgery with craniofacial and, and or endoscopic resection followed by adjuvant radiation therapy plus or minus chemotherapy. And then for upfront definitive chemoradiation therapy, um, with salvage surgery as uh, the backup option. Either way, treatment for this disease will require a multidisciplinary team of not just head and neck surgeons, but also, as we discussed, pathologists, medical and radiation oncologists, as well as neurosurgery colleagues. There is very promising um, research and algorithms that have been adopted now at several institutions for induction chemotherapy upfront for all patients presenting with SNUCs. The advantage of induction chemo is that it can help us make an unresectable tumor resectable and preserving important structures um, such as the orbit or uh, cranial nerves that might be involved. Induction chemotherapy can also help us predict the response to consolidation chemoradiation therapy. It can help reduce the risk of distant metastasis or treat existing distant metastasis. 
Um, and one proposed algorithm is an upfront induction chemotherapy for all patients, then to assess the treatment response using uh, symptoms, uh, imaging, um, as well as endoscopic findings. And if patients do respond, then they can go on to get chemoradiation therapy. And if they do not respond uh, and they are resectable, then surgery can be considered in that setting. There are many new exciting uh, frontiers um, on the horizon for uh, SNUCs, uh, including targeted uh, therapies, uh, molecular studies in the lab, as well as clinical trials involving immunotherapy agents. Now I'll be moving on to the question and answer section. In uh, this section, I'll be asking some questions uh, and uh, giving a brief cause so the listener can think about the answer and then repeating the answer afterwards. What is the most common site of involvement within the sinonasal cavity for a SNUC? The most common site of involvement is within the main nasal cavity itself, uh, potentially in the ethmoid region. Uh, that is the most commonly involved sinus within the paranasal sinuses. Good examination of a patient with a suspected snuck should include rigid endoscopy and looking in the nasal cavity on both sides at septal involvement as well as within the middle meatus. What are the immunohistochemical markers that define a snuck? Pathologic diagnosis is really the key for the diagnosis of SNUCs, uh, as they can uh, look very similar to other small round blue cell tumors that are found in the head and neck and specifically within the sinonasal cavity. SNUCs are, again, positive to AE1 and AE3, positive for low molecular weight cytokeratins, negative for CK5, 6, and 14, variably positive to neuroendocrine markers such as synaptophysin, and negative for melanocyte markers, negative for nut, and negative for muscle markers as well. What is the rate of nodal involvement for snucks in the neck? Up to about 30% of patients with snucks will present with nodal disease at the time of their staging evaluation. Finally, what are the chemotherapy agents that are most commonly used in induction chemotherapy for SNUCs? Cisplatin and entoposide, which is a, a combination that's commonly used in small cell lung cancer, um, which is considered a similar pathologic disease to SNUCs, is the most commonly used induction algorithm, but the dose of this, as well as the specific agents used, can be adjusted based on patient comorbidities. That's our episode. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you soon.